Sergio. Um, thank you guys for being here uh, on this early day of January term. I uh, hope everyone's return to break or from break has been relaxing and not too stressful and all the things. Um, so my name is Miko Zaldisroth. I'm a PhD student in political theory and I'm a fellow here at the Center for Ethics. Um, and what I'm hoping to talk about and explore with you guys together today is uh, work that I've been doing broadly related to my dissertation, which focuses on white supremacy and contemporary conceptions of citizenship in the United States, and uh, thinking kind of on one track of that broader, much broader project um, about the theme of responsibility and the ways in which uh, personal responsibility, which I'll kind of discuss a little bit more as, uh, as we go through things today, the ways in which uh, white supremacy distorts personal responsibility in the United States. Um, and really want to think about the ways in which responsibility and politics are connected to one another. Um, what are the implications for that relationship for democratic politics in the United States, um, not just historically, but really today in this very fraught moment that we're living in uh, in the United States. Uh, and so a little bit about myself, kind of go. Um, I'm a white American Jew. I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side, which was like the most liberal, uh, very white neighborhood. Um, and I was kind of enamored with, or kind of grew up around in a neighborhood that was enamored with a very particular idea of post-racialism, post-racial liberalism. Um, that was really the dominant strand of, of kind of political zeitgeist uh, between you know the early 2000s when I was growing up until 2016. Um, and when that shattered in 2016 with the Trump administration, uh, I found myself kind of looking to try to make sense of what had happened in my own community and what had happened in the neighborhoods that I had grown up in and how is it possible that we had on the one hand been so convinced of our own kind of post-racial whiteness and on the other hand, completely blind to the racial dynamics that we were convinced in the whole way through. So that is kind of the background and I say that because I think it will come up in threads through this talk. Uh, the other piece that's relevant to knowing about how I'm approaching some of these issues is that I'm the branch of Holocaust refugees. And so some of the thinkers that I'm thinking with and interested in looking at in an American context, particularly Hannah Arendt, um, are shaped by the ways in which I have made sense of those thinkers through my own family history um, and trying to think about the ways in which we can understand some of the contemporary issues in American politics uh, and race and politics in the United States uh, with an eye towards uh, the history of Europe um, and particularly the early to mid-20th century. So the two thinkers that I want to orient around today are James Baldwin and Hannah Arendt. Um, I realized for those who read the pieces that I sent out, there's a third thinker, Joel Olson, whose work is very important, and I'll engage with him as well. Um, and I think it's important that we read that piece, but, but Baldwin is, is important here too. So, um, so and, I'll, and just kind of briefly want to provide a little bit of background about how and why I'm engaging with each of these uh, folks. Uh, so Baldwin, uh, post-war American intellectual, he was writing primarily in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, although his work uh, began as early as 1948. Um, and one of the really intriguing pieces of Baldwin's work on race and politics uh, is that he was not focused only on the violence and oppression of white supremacy and uh, racial apartheid in the United States, but the ways in which that oppression distorted both the livelihoods and lives of black Americans and white Americans. And he could see rather trenchantly the ways in which racism and, and kind of commitments to white supremacy on the part of white Americans ended up 
distorting or destroying white Americans' personal lives. And he really drew a connection that I'm going to talk a little bit more about in this uh, coming slides between, on the one hand, the ongoing personal violence that many white Americans perpetrated on a kind of ongoing basis and the kind of utter lack of meaning um, that was present in American life and that he picked up on. Um, and so the way that Baldwin was framing these questions, I think is both innovative and also somewhat uncomfortable, right? He's, he's turning around and forcing us to look at what is the appeal of white supremacy? Why are we as white Americans attracted to these ideals, even if we say we're not, right? What, what is the productive utility of racial violence? Um, and Baldwin, I think, is a really important thinker for thinking through some of those questions. Arendt is a very different thinker um, and a much more complicated person with whom to think and talk about race and politics in the United States. Uh, on the one hand, she wrote and quite effectively on the relationship between racism and totalitarianism in Europe. Um, but her treatments of racism were at best complicated and at worst, I think we could say, uh, uh, kind of incomplete or even um, actively prejudiced and, and ahistorical. Um, so on the one hand, Arendt was able to kind of trace the relationship between atomization, the destruction of the European class order, and the emergence of racism as a productive ideology that could really help undergird the project of expansionist totalitarianism on the one hand. And yet, on the other hand, um, she could really, she was really a flawed interlocutor in many ways. Um, when it came to American politics, she herself uh, opposed variously the projects of, uh, of school integration. She had deep, deep skepticism towards uh, the black radical left that she expressed pretty virulently. Um, and she used her own identity as a Holocaust survivor and as a refugee to affirm her own whiteness and undermine the political agency or deny the political agency of black radical actors in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So I want to qualify in particular the way in which I'm engaging with Arendt um, and think about the ways in which we can pick up on some of the really useful insights that she had uh, in her treatments of European racism, particularly the relationship between racism and irresponsibility, which I'll talk a little bit about, without kind of salvaging or trying to rescue or deny um, the real limits of her own identity, of her own prejudice, and her own racism. So I, I realize that's kind of a little bit of a fine dance to be doing, but I hope you'll, I hope you'll entertain this a little bit, um, and I'd welcome questions on, on both of these thinkers as well. Um, the focus for today that I'm hoping to think really about is the ways in which white supremacy in the United States facilitates abdications of personal responsibility for white Americans today, and I want to think a little bit about some of the implications of those abdications of responsibility for democratic politics. Um, to do that, I'm going to divide uh, kind of today's presentation into three pieces. The first piece, I'm going to look at Baldwin and look a little bit at his diagnosis of American politics and the ways in which he really teases out a relationship between uh, abdications of responsibility or lack of responsibility in the kind of white supremacist socio-political order uh, that he's identifying. In the second piece, um, I'm going to talk about what I mean by responsibility in the first place and try to use both Baldwin and Arendt to think about the ways in which we can unpack responsibility or the lack of it in American politics today. And then in the third part, I'm going to think about how abdications of responsibility um, translate into a retreat from multiracial politics uh, for white Americans in particular. And that's where I'll turn to Joe Olson's work um, and, and uh, kind of turn maybe a little bit more towards some of the questions that were raised uh, in the reading. So 
Uh, I realize sections one and two might feel out of order to some, uh, but I think it's important to get a sense of what I understand to be going on before we kind of ferret into the specific definitions. I think uh, Baldwin is really effective in this regard for setting, uh, setting the groundwork. And the last thing that I would say is that um, this is contingent and, and very much incomplete. I think there are open debates about where we are in the United States today, about the different intersection, intersecting socio-political orders, the different racial orders that, that are kind of ascendant or retrenchant. Um, and so I, I, I've kind of skirted some of those, those scholarly debates in this presentation for the focus, to kind of for the sake of focusing really on the idea of responsibility. But again, would welcome that in the discussion period if we want to talk about uh, you know, how do we understand today's racial order in the United States? So Baldwin, in a really kind of trenchant quote, um, this is from an interview, uh, illuminates the problem in American society. And Baldwin's saying this in the mid-1960s, but I think his words ring quite true uh, to today, right? That there is something about white American bourgeois society and the protections that that society enjoys that is predicated on irresponsibility. And Baldwin doesn't define responsibility. He was public intellectual, uh, so he was much more fluid in some regards with his, his terminology than we might like as academics who are focused on precision. But the real insight that Baldwin had is that irresponsibility is not an aberration, but the, in many ways it's foundational kind of ideal, right? Um, there is some connection between irresponsibility and what white Americans consider to be democracy, or at least white renditions of democracy in the United States. And I would suggest the quotes around the term democracy in this quote up here are rather significant because they suggest that, suggest that there's nothing particularly democratic about the idealized or stylized notion of the American dream that Baldwin is portraying in this quote. Um, if anything, what Baldwin is pointing towards is something that is very antisocial. There's a, a kind of antisocial impulse in white American, white America, um, and it's not only antisocial but even anti-political. It's a dream of life without responsibility. It's a for Baldwin. It's a life without meaning. Um, and so, in Baldwin's thinking, there is this relationship between responsibility, meaning, and politics and sociality, all of which are utterly absent from white America. And, and the reason they're absent from white America for Baldwin is because white supremacy in some ways is this kind of protective veil that allows white Americans to escape from what other might, is, might be understood as the kind of regular burdens of life. Um, and so there's this kind of escapist uh, you know, immaturity, Baldwin also refers to it as immaturity, that is present uh, in Baldwin's critique and diagnosis of American society and something really dangerous about that irresponsibility. So uh, Baldwin in the previous quote does not discuss race explicitly, but he's alluding to it in many ways. Um, and he's looking at the theme, the relationship between white, white supremacy and responsibility. And there is real violence in this lack of responsibility for Baldwin, um, often perpetrated between people who know each other intimately, whether these are friends or lovers or neighbors. Um, and we can think about the ways in which this is not just a feature of American history in the past in terms of thinking about uh, slave, uh, you know, enslaved people and chattel slavery, about the Jim Crow era and racial apartheid, but also in contemporary moments of police violence where there is routine, intimate violence. In other words, violence between people who are at very close proximity, not just structural violence, 
well, that's obviously a problem too. And on the one hand, Baldwin here states that, that this problem isn't racial, but in some ways, right, the problem of responsibility that Baldwin is pointing towards in this quote is the refusal of white, on the one hand, refusal of white Americans to take responsibility, but on the other hand, the ways in which race in some ways facilitates these applications of responsibilities. White supremacy is what allows white Americans to kind of unthinkingly perpetrate violence that is otherwise so heinous that it would hard, be hard to believe. Um, and I'm not sure folks saw the recent movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a complicated film in some regards, but I think points towards, in many ways, what Baldwin is talking about. The premise of, for those who don't know, the premise of Killers of the Flower Moon is that it is um, a group of white men who willingly concoct a scheme to murder their loved ones, uh, indigenous uh, native loved ones for the sake of stealing their their money and their rights to to oil money in Oklahoma at the turn of the century. It's a true story. And so one of the things that when I saw this film, I immediately thought to Baldwin, because what is it about race, right? What is it that allows people such as the folks in this film, but also more broadly in American history uh, to do things like kill their children or kill their lovers or kill their friends or kill their neighbors? And what Baldwin is showing us is that racism offers some kind of protection, some kind of escape that makes that kind of violence possible. And I think that's a very trenchant insight for kind of painting the portrait for how we understand America today. Where despite the lack of a kind of overt uh, a racial apartheid system in quite the same ways as we might've seen in the Jim Crow era, we still have these recurrent um, escapes of responsibility that have and facilitate enormous amounts of violence on their own. So that's kind of the, the critical diagnosis that I think Baldwin sets up. And this is where I want to turn a little bit towards Arendt, right? So if we understand white supremacy as this tool that facilitates escapes from responsibility, um, then the question is, what exactly are white Americans actually, what are we refusing to do? What are, what are we abdicating responsibility from? What does it mean to, to not take responsibility in the ways that Baldwin is suggesting? And I want to think uh, through and with Arendt on this question, in part because Arendt is a, a really unusual thinker of responsibility who has, I believe, a lot of utility for this particular moment, right? So broadly speaking, right, Arendt is writing in the wake of the Holocaust. She's trying to understand, uh, particularly in her later works, exactly how a whole society could embrace the Nazis and become willing contributors to such evil. And so in certain regards, the question that she is asking has some important parallels with the questions that Baldinar is asking. In other words, how is it possible and what is the what is the kind of what makes it possible for people to find this type of violence so appealing? Um, and she's interested in both the leaders of the regime, right? She writes on Eichmann and other uh, Nazi high leaders. Um, but in her writing, particularly her writing, personal responsibility under dictatorship, she's concerned with what happens to everyday Germans and how it becomes possible basically for a whole society to, without warning, totally switch its moral ideals and in the process embrace what she describes as a criminal regime in the Nazis. And so Arendt's notion of responsibility um, is directly informed by her diagnosis both of German society and what happened historically but also more broadly, what she calls the break in the intellectual tradition, right? So there was a kind of broad sweep, uh, 2000 year history of intellectual and intellectual tradition, the great Western tradition. Totalitarianism represents what she terms the decisive break in that tradition, a break that is so profound 
that we actually cannot hope to recover the ideals and moral standards that that tradition held for us um, in any appreciable way because they have completely lost their public authority. And that isn't because RNC sees totalitarianism as the result of that tradition, but because it represents such a decisive moment in human history that we can't hope to just go back and recover what was lost by in, the, in that moment. So we need to kind of reinvent standards and reconsider how we have fundamental moral precepts on the one hand um, without falling into the trap or the same mistakes that we had the last time. And the mistake that Arendt really focuses on um, is that issue of standards themselves, right? What Arendt sees in Germany is a society where moral ideals had devolved into mores, kind of pure habits that had very little meaning and almost no authority. And that's how they could just be replaced by another set of ideals when the Nazis came in. There was nothing except kind of habituated um, adherence to these ideals, no sense uh, that these, for individuals, that these ideals had any meaning um, beyond the fact that they've kind of offered structure to people's lives. And our worry is that any attempt to kind of reconstruct external notions or external standards of moralities and impose them onto individuals is going to repeat the same problem that led to the Nazis in the first place. And, and also not only, even if we were to try to do that, right, that would be impossible given the breaking tradition. So there's a double problem here. And so her alternative to this problem is to think about the ways in which we can conceive of a conception of morality, which can inform our conception of responsibility that isn't tethered to uh, external standards. How do, in other words, how do we, from the ground up, create a standard of, of morality that can help inform responsibility? Um, and so what she begins to think about is looking at the, the role of the individual. And she thinks, turns towards thinking. This is her work in the life of the mind, as well as her work in responsibility on judgment. Um, and she thinks about the ways in which thinking itself can be, um, can be a precursor to judging, and judging as a precursor to morality, and morality understood very, very, very narrowly for Arendt um, as a way of informing personal responsibility. Um, and I'm going to discuss how these pieces intersect in a moment. I'll let you read the quote. Um, but the important thing that I just want to emphasize here is that Arendt frames thinking, judging, and morality as the bedrock of responsibility. We can't have a notion of responsibility that is defined by some kind of external this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. Um, rather, responsibility is internally produced through our own thinking and judging processes. And so the parallels with Baldwin here is that like Baldwin, Arendt is locating responsibility on the individual. I think Baldwin's a little bit more open about whether responsibility is internally or externally that kind of framed. Uh, but at the end of the day, both emphasize the need to take responsibility, right? It's about ownership over oneself, one's actions, and the effects of those actions. It's not about externally, kind of adhering to externally deduced ideals of right or wrong. And so for our end, responsibility is about our individual choice. Um, it's about how we align our actions with the decisions that we make and the judgments that we make um, that are themselves the standards of morality. So how does this work in Arendt's thinking? Again, she was writing, um, these are primarily uh, like personal responsibility or dictatorship is a lecture. Many of these are lectures. So this is not formalized in a kind of concrete one, two, three way, although she gets closer to some of this in life of the mind. Um, but ultimately she offers us kind of three concepts that I think are important for understanding responsibility and that I'm gonna draw on for thinking about American politics today. 
So for Arendt, thinking uh, is about an individual's conversations with themselves, right? It's the internal dialogue, which she calls the two and one, um, and it's the precondition for having a conscience. And this is this is the what she got over a lot of hot water with Eichmann and the Eichmann trial, um, but it's why she saw the Nazis as unthinking, right? That they had allowed ideology to supplant their own dialogue with themselves to the point where they could not have consciences at all, at all, not have consciences at all. And so they were not people uh, in, in a very literal sense, right? They were nobodies. This was Arndt's big claim because they failed to think. And if they couldn't think, then they couldn't constitute themselves as kind of sentient conscious beings. So thinking is step, step A, but it doesn't get us all the way to responsibility, right? Judging for Arendt, and again, judging was a topic she alluded to, but kind of famously passed away when the heading of the last section of Life of the Mind, where she was going to flesh out her idea, her kind of theory of judgment was, was so her theory is incomplete. Um, but judging I want to offer for Arendt is when we make judgments about particular situations, and it serves as the conceptual bridge between our thoughts and our actions. It's when we actualize our thinking, is what Arendt says. Um, and morality is the third piece, right? Morality are the limits um, that are created by thinking and actualized by judging. And morality is defined largely negatively for Arndt. It's defined as that which I won't do if I hope to be able to live with myself. And the kind of logic of this argument hinges for Arndt on the idea that if we think, then there are certain things that we will not be able to do if we hope to live with ourselves, right? Again, this is the kind of dialogical model of thinking that she's charting out. And if there are certain things that we're not gonna be able to do and hope to live with ourselves, the things that we won't do, those decisions, is the kind of limit point of morality in the, in the post-totalitarian post age. And so this is a pretty weak ideal of, of morality, right? It's, it's predicated not on, again, any kind of external dogma, but solely on what an individual uh, is comfortable living with themselves, which means it might be different from person to person. Um, but, but Arendt seems to have some optimism that kind of it can prevent what she calls the worst degrees of evil, the types of evil that she saw present uh, in, in the Nazi regime. And the important thing about morality is that it introduces limits on politics, right? There are, it's going to prevent certain types of radical evil, as she terms it, from occurring, um, the types of evil that happen in the totalitarian regimes. And all of this, thinking, judging, morality, form the basis of responsibility. Responsibility are those practices I want to offer that presume um, and actualize our judgments about morality. Um, and so in the same way that thinking and then judging presume a degree, and judging in particular, presume a degree of equality between people, because it presumes a degree of communicability between subjects, uh, responsibility, I would want to say, constructs and presumes a measure of equality between people. Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't, doesn't negate all hierarchy. It doesn't mean that it's kind of some universal ideal, but it does. There is kind of a weak ideal of responsibility, of equality in Arendt's theory of responsibility. Um, and so I want to think, again, this is, this is a kind of loose, individually constituted and really contingent ideal of, of, um, of responsibility. But I think there's some productive uh, appeals and productive utilities for thinking through this idea of responsibility in American today. So a couple, a little bit more first on Arendt's theory of responsibility. Arendt distinguishes um, between political responsibility on the one hand and personal responsibility on the other. 
Um, and this distinction is, is, again, a contingent one, but I think one worth thinking through. Political responsibility for art is about the responsibility either on the part of governments or states or those who claim the identities associated with those governments and states for uh, actions that people may not have committed themselves, but committed in their name, right? This is, this is Arendt's big issue with, uh, with the German, post-war German uh, order and post-war German society, where she sees all these uh, German individuals as being ferociously guilty for things that they didn't do, and they shouldn't feel guilty in Arendt's, but they should feel responsible. That's Arendt's intervention. We should feel responsible for what happened in our name as Germans, she argues, but not, uh, you should not feel guilty for things that you did not do. And so there's a kind of fine line that she's walking here, but one that I think is worth thinking through um, with this ideal of political responsibility. Personal responsibility is a little bit more contingent and reflects back on the ideas of thinking and judging morality, individual morality that Arendt um, is playing with uh, and which we've discussed in the previous slide. So, and, and I would say the other thing about personal responsibility is that it really hinges in many ways on, on, on kind of the individual. It's not, there is no kind of external recourse to, to the political or to the state to determine what, or any kind of external body to what, for what personal responsibility can be. And all of that points towards the ways in which Arendt herself is looking at the ways in which racism um, functions as an abdication of responsibility. The quote here is from The Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, which is Arendt's work uh, on uh, racism, imperialism, anti-Semitism, and totalitarianism. And she's focused in this piece and in this section specifically, which I'm quoting from, on the ways in which racism kind of got brewed up in the era of 19th century imperial expansion, particularly in Africa, and then eventually gets reimported to Europe at the start of the 20th century. There are a whole host of problems with that argument historically. Um, but the key feature that is really useful, I think, for our conception of understanding American politics is that Arendt understands racism as a retreat from any kind of humanistic ideal of common responsibility. Right? The idea that there is some basic principle that every person in the, is a human being. Racism at its most fundamental core is a denial of what she sees as that fact. Right. And that is the real utility of racism because it doesn't, unlike nationalism or other kinds of exclusionary political ideals, it isn't tethered uh, to a specific place or time. It's not geographically bounded. Racism is a global ideal. Um, and it suggests that in denying shared humanities, it allows us to kind of shirk political responsibility, uh, not only for mankind generally um, and for racialized subjects in particular, but also at some level for ourselves. Um, so there's kind of three abdications going on in that regard. And racism is a framework which allows white actors to disavow any kind of political commitment that might emerge from a recognition of the political responsibility inherent in notions of shared humanity or mankind, right? So there's a denial of, of political responsibility that's going on here. There's also, I think, a denial of, of personal responsibility um, because racism isn't just hostile uh, to political responsibility, it allows us uh, to avoid the types of thinking and judging that might allow us to constitute our own personal responsibility. As an external ideal or a standard, um, white supremacy is hostile to so the types of reflecting judging, reflective judging that Arendt suggests is necessary for responsibility. And so insofar as we may remain attached to white supremacy, to the idea that there is a kind of foreordained hierarchy on how politics should, a kind of political hierarchy how we should order our politics. 
then those attachments constitute a refusal to judge on our own terms. Um, and it enables in that regard, or white Americans, I would argue, to avoid taking responsibility, taking personal responsibility um, for themselves and for their actions. And so racism and what this ends up being is racism transforms action into license. It transforms freedom into license. Um, where instead of having freedom that for our end, let's say, might be bounded by a recognition of the other, um, we now have freedom that is just about doing whatever we please. And again, this is where I think the resonance with Baldwin is quite useful, uh, that there's a certain degree of license, of kind of immaturity, of we can do whatever we please, that that is the true vision of the American dream. Um, that is itself a kind of loss of responsibility. And so where does this kind of leave us? Um, in the color, I'm drawing here on Joel Olson, um, who writes explicitly on the ways in which the relationship between whiteness, white supremacy, and the white political imagination. Um, and Olson really looks at the colorblind constitutional era, right? So particularly the post-war, um, post-civil rights era, um, where whiteness is transformed in from an ideal of standing, right? The right to be able to participate politically into an expectation of privilege. And I would offer that that transition has meaningful political ramifications. It does not destabilize the overarching structure of white supremacy. So long, right, so because whether it's about yeah, kind of legal, uh, legal protections for one's standing or an expectation of privilege, the attachment to one's ideal, to a kind of white American's self-understanding of uh, kind of self-superiority uh, remains the same. And so, as the state reinvests in racial difference, Olson is pointing towards how that racial difference presumes continued racial hierarchy and presumes uh, continued racial privilege. So where then does responsibility fit into this uh, kind of question? Um, Olson is really pointing towards how we might locate contemporary applications of responsibility. Um, it's not just about the experience of domination as Baldwin charts out, but also about the non-experience of certain types of oppression. And I'm thinking particularly here of carceral violence or interaction with the carceral state that is overwhelmingly targeted towards communities of colors, and largely is an experience that white Americans uh, don't have to ever experience on a routine basis. And so the non-experience of oppression, the non-experience of domination is white privilege. It's not just the other the forms of active privilege, which of course exist, but also the non-experience of certain types of domination and we might even call it kind of authoritarian authoritarianism uh, that is a hallmark of, of the kind of carceral state in the United States today. And so as white Americans remain attached to that privilege, I think they also remain attached to that the ideals of white supremacy. And in so doing, uh, we are in trouble, I think, about when it comes to responsibility because those attachments to white supremacy, those attachments to expectations of privilege and superiority allow us to avoid the uncomfortable realities that might come with taking responsibility. They allow us to avoid the kind of judging and thinking uh, that might force white Americans to recognize the ways in which their comfort, their non-experience of privilege requires and presumes the subordination of racialized minorities. Um, and so what that ha what happens then is white supremacy remains this kind of standard of thinking uh, and the standard of judging. 
uh, in American politics today for white for white Americans specifically. So what is this politics that I've kind of been alluding to? Uh, what is the politics without uh, white, without personal responsibility? Um, I think part of this is license. I think I mentioned the politics without where there exists kind of no expectation uh, amongst individuals that anyone will ever be held to account for what they do. Um, but it's a politics also that provides white Americans to act without moral limits. It's a politics without thinking. And Baldwin's kind of emphasis on immaturity is really telling. Again, he's writing about American popular culture. He's not writing with the same kind of precision that we might want uh, or hope for uh, from a uh, kind of political theorist or a philosopher. But the theme of immaturity, the theme of kind of license is really important for Baldwin. And it's, it's all over his work, right? The idea that on the one hand, John Wayne is considered an American hero because he is an actor, he's, you know, he's strong, he's a man, and, and the real discrepancy that would occur if John Wayne were to be a black man, right? And, and so on the, the kind of immaturity that whiteness allows for, the escape from responsibility that whiteness allows for, is, I think, very much tethered to what Art is talking about in the previous book, which is a kind of hostility or a deep aversion or worry with judging, right? We don't, we don't want to judge because to judge would require us to take responsibility for our actions. And much better for white Americans uh, to stay in this kind of infantilized uh, world that does not involve any kind of, any kind of personal responsibility, um, any kind of action and any kind of uh, obligation towards other citizens. Um, so the politics means that two things. One is it means that we have no kind of commitment to democratic ideals at a very foundational level, right? Because there's no commitment to political equality. And on the other hand, it means that Americans of color are implicitly expected to, and this is what Baldwin is pointing towards specifically in this quote, is that Americans of color end up shouldering the work of responsibility, uh, a political and personal responsibility to, that to kind of sustain American democracy in a, in a wildly disproportionate ways. And so to be white is to be exempt from these responsibilities, but that doesn't mean responsibility is going anywhere. Uh, we know that. Uh, it means that those burdens are, are, are shouldered by those um, who are dominated in today's racial order. And so I want to kind of conclude with this last piece from Baldwin, um, from his last, kind of, or one of his later major works, No Name on the Street, which uh, was, I think, tellingly ripped by white critics when it was first published. It was seen as too cynical. It was not seen as hopeful enough, uh, unlike his previous work. It was seen as uh, too socialist. Um, and yet what Baldwin was showing was a deep skepticism and deep worries about the ways in which white Americans uh, could ever hope to change uh, so long as they remain attached to the kind of lack of responsibility or the immaturity that he discusses in the previous quotes. And a politics without responsibility isn't just one that presumes hierarchy or is hostile to quality that's necessary to sustain democracy. It's really not a politics at all, right? Um, the entire premise of the racial order in the United States is one that presumes or allows white Americans to withdraw from the realities of multiracial politics, to construct this fantasy land of the Plymouth and the white picket fence and the suburb, suburban kind of world that Baldwin discusses without having to confront head on the very real systems of oppression and domination that uphold that white fantasy. And so 
insofar as that happens, I would argue that isn't just a failure of personal responsibility. It's not just an abdication of responsibility. It's really actually a retreat from the realities of politics altogether and a retreat from, from kind of any commitment to politics understood quite broadly. And so by refusing to take responsibility, white Americans absolve themselves of any ownership um, over themselves or their actions, right? It's a politics of license, which really isn't a politics at all. Um, and for the political, right, it also means they don't have to take political responsibility for the, for the system from which they continue to benefit. And I would argue that, that we are living in this kind of very contingent moment when Trump is on the news again, um, when there have been meaningful uh, and dramatic declines in white support for uh, by all measures for uh, multiracial equality, multiracial and racial justice, um, that we are living in a moment where there is again this retreat from responsibility that is happening in, in the white poll in the white public. And so, if 2020 represented a kind of upswing or a moment of recognition um, in a really dramatic way, in many ways it feels like that those the kind of notions of responsibility that that surged into the public discourse three years ago, four years ago now um, are now ebbing away. And there is this retreat back into the world that Baldwin describes of the kind of white picket fence, um, which I'm using as a, as a bit of a metaphor here. And that retreat, I think, isn't just about who's going to win the next presidential election, but, but what we actually mean by the idea of American politics at all, and whether as white Americans, we are willing to kind of confront and look head on at the ways in which, despite our, you know, uh, kind of explicit commitments to political equality, uh, the ways in which our actions and our expectations for superiority and privilege, which are kind of definitional of whiteness in the United States today, remain huge obstacles towards any type of true multiracial equality and multiracial. Um, I'm going to close there.